morning. Um, my name is Brad. I'm one of the, well, not one of the other pastors, the only other pastor here. Um, let me start by doing uh, and being guilty of what Danny said at the beginning, that I love saying this. Uh, he is risen. Now, let me give a caveat to that, actually, though, because I have a confession to make that having not grown up in the church and having um, heard that before from Christians around Easter, suspecting it had something to do with Easter, but thought it was more about like a, an Easter bunny waking up from a long winter nap or something. I was maybe confusing Easter and Groundhog Day. I don't know. Um, but as a non-Christian, as someone who didn't, had never been inside of a church before, I felt actually very similar to the response that Mary and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna and these women experienced in the response to their telling of what happened at the empty tomb. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. I thought it was just fairy tale. Like the, the, the language here of idle tale is actually like, it's, it's actually a lot more offensive. It's not just like, eh, yeah, whatever. It's more like, no, you're just full of it. Like it's just like, this is not true. This is a fantasy. After becoming a Christian, um, after college, I very much still kind of, you know, I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand why we do this now as a practice, and, and I, it, it says something good and true about Scripture, but just as a practice, it felt kind of like this, I don't know, like a nostalgic tradition, you know, a, an empty ritual, maybe just even a, a cultural thing that weird Christians do, like, like potlucks and clip-on bow ties, um, <laughs> Let me be very clear about that last part. Um, potlucks are awesome. Just because it's cultural does not mean it's bad. And this, yes, is not a clip-on bow tie. It is a real-tied bow tie. And I am happy to prove that and show it to you after the service if you don't believe me. For those reasons and others, right, I've always preferred, and you have also heard me say, if you've been around more than one Easter, this amazing Anne Lamont quote, that we are an Easter people in a Good Friday world. There's something that feels more honest and authentic about that, yes, because I'm a millennial, um, but also because it matches up to reality. But let's be honest, it makes for a pretty terrible call and response, right? Easter people, good Friday world, right? It's just, you start up here and it's just all downhill, right? It's just, it's, it's difficult. Today, this morning, I want to redeem uh, this, this phrase, and actually more so the practice of like what it means to actually say this back and forth to one another, to say, he is risen, and then to respond, he is risen indeed, except it might be more accurate to say that we don't need to redeem it, because it already has been, and we're going to explore how Easter has actually done that already, and we don't need to, through the kind of percolating on three words in the passage that Bryce read for us this morning. The first word um, is perplexed. Let me reread verses 1 through 4. It says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. While they were perplexed about this. The only thing maybe worse than watching a loved one be crucified is to be crucified yourself. So Joseph of Arimathea, this friend of Jesus and the disciples, when he gave this generous donation of allowing Jesus to be put into a tomb, this was, this was kind of the one itty little bit of kindness in the midst of complete and utter darkness for the disciples. 
right? It, to say it was a bright spot that, gee, we have someone to, somewhere to bury our friend is, is just doesn't even really represent this. But it was a bright spot that they look forward to over the excruciating period of waiting over the course of the Sabbath day between Friday night and Sunday morning, which we now call Holy Saturday. So to say that they were perplexed is not describing them as having some kind of cognitive confusion, like, like which Scantron bubble is the right answer. And if you don't know what a Scantron is, bless your heart. I'm jealous, actually. It's more an existential shock and horror and despair, the, akin to saying, like, are you kidding me? After everything that's happened in the last week, never mind the last three years, we can't even give our friend and teacher a proper burial. Why? My son, Ransom, he's five. He's, he's very much like his dad and is a creature of habit. Um, he loves to have yogurt every single morning for breakfast. And, and not just yogurt, but like drizzled uh, honey. And it has to be in a swirl. If you do it back and forth, you may as well start over. <laughs> and sometimes we run out of yogurt. And it's, it's hard, okay? But there's one morning... It was my day off where I opened the fridge and I said, hey, look, there's, there's yogurt in here. And I open it up and find out I was wrong, that it was mostly empty, that there was some on the sides. And, and he, he, was, he was really discouraged. You could see the meltdown was starting to begin. He was starting to get flushed. The tears were coming into his eyes. I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Hey, let me, let me scrape off the sides as much as possible and see if I can get out enough. And I'm like going through my head like, okay, what do I tell him about how this is actually a really good thing instead of a bad thing? Um, and I, I scrape out, and it's the most pathetic dollop of yogurt you've ever seen, right? It's like a spoonful and a half, maybe. And you could just see he just, he was, he was actually more upset and more sad because of the disappointment and the set expectations of thinking that there was just at least a little bit of yogurt in there, but instead, as I'm scraping out the sides, it's only just the burial linens. I'm sorry, I mean, I mean a spoonful and a half of yogurt. Now, so you know that I'm not a monster, I immediately took him to go get donuts. <laughs> for the disciples and for, for the women in particular, it was like what little good stuff was remaining had been scraped out and turning that emptiness of the empty tomb into more than just the absence of the body of their friend, it transformed it into a vivid reminder and a potent Stab in the side on top of that. It was actually worse because of the disappointed expectations. No wonder Mary and company gave the angels, you know, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a little bit of side eye when they said he's not here, right? In my experience, we may experience or, or, or feel the need to give a little bit of side eye to the, the phrase and the practice of repeating he is risen to one another because we either have been had an inordinate exposure or a prolonged protection from the brokenness of this world. Here's what I mean by that. Like, for those of us who are profoundly aware of our wounds, of the brokenness of, the, of life around us, Easter can feel both too good to be true and too, too risky to hope in. After all, right, if, if, if you are in that place, we have so much personal evidence to the contrary of a resurrection reality that it feels foolish to actually get our hopes up like that. And so perplexed, 
being perplexed is actually just safer than disappointment. For those of us who are maybe too anesthetized with distraction or comfort or affluence, and I mean that including anyone in middle-class middle America, because that's still incredibly wealthy by compare, compared to the rest of the world, Easter can be profoundly disturbing. Right? It's disturbing because it, it insists on the, both the existence of a Good Friday world, a broken world that, re, that requires and has the possibility of the cross, but also that we've managed to avoid through those distractions and comforts. But it also points to a goodness that is far greater than our coping mechanisms, a goodness that we neither understand nor can actually fully or even remotely control. So if anything, living in a Good Friday world too often for us, for, for modern people, means swinging back and forth between exposure and protection until we feel like, well, like we've been scraped out like a pint-sized plastic carton of yogurt. Maybe you're even thinking right now, does Brad even know that it's Easter Sunday? That this is supposed to be about celebration, right? You said you weren't a monster. Prove it. Where is the gospel donut in this, in this sermon? And don't worry, it gets better, kind of. The second word that we need to look at is, is marveling, is in ver and it's in verse 12. It says, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know, maybe... Maybe Peter, remembering that Jesus, when he said something was going to happen, had a pretty good track record. Maybe he remembered that Jesus told him on the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper that, that before the rooster crowed the next morning, that Good Friday, that Passover, that Peter would deny him three times and he was struck and, and devastated that that had come true. Maybe he allowed himself to just kind of hope against hope after so much disappointment Maybe he hoped enough to think, you know, I just got to see this with my own eyes. <laughs> What's remarkable and what I appreciate about Luke's account here is that he didn't, <laughs> right? It's not that like that little mustard seed of faith was rewarded with, okay, Jesus is there waiting for him, right? He didn't see it, and at least not with the eyes in his head. He didn't see the resurrection any more than we did, but by it, he came to see everything. A fantastic book I wholeheartedly recommend is called uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's by an author named Tom Holland who also has an amazing, if you're a history buff, his podcast he co-hosts uh, called uh, The Rest is History is gold. Go listen to it, and I don't know how they come up with that much content literally almost every day. Anyway, he says, there's a point to this, I promise, um, in this book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, to all those many millions who worship him as the son of the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, was not merely an event in history, but the very pivot around which the cosmos turns. Now, this is, he's describing our relationship and how we view the crucifixion. So Easter, then, was, is really the first day of, of, of history itself in this new world, in the new creation, inaugurated and heralded and proclaimed by the resurrection. That's actually not the crazy thing about this quote. The crazy thing is that Tom Holland isn't a Christian. He self-describes, he describes himself as an agnostic who, 
Similar to Peter marveling at the effect that the resurrection has had on these women who became the church's very first evangelists, he, Holland, believes, or at least marvels, at the effect that the resurrection has had on the entire world. Right? The effect that includes that this morning, 2.4 billion people, billion with a B, one-third of the world's population and more every year, Cannot, who cannot agree, you get two of them in the same room, they can't agree really on anything, but all 2.4 billion people agree that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore and he is risen. Okay, that was a softball, guys. Okay, cool. <laughs> but that instead, these 2.4 billion people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will actually worship Jesus by virtue of the resurrection 2,000 years after he lived, died, and was resurrected. Without exception, dead martyrs are forgotten. One living Messiah started a revolution that we are still seeing accelerate and grow and build because it's the kingdom of God. If, if that does not cause you to pause and just marvel and maybe think to yourself in one form or another, maybe, maybe there's a God around here somewhere, then I would encourage you to consider that you might be anesthetized by comfort and distraction and things that do not matter as much as that which causes a revolution with 2.4 billion people. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that this word marveled is kind of part of this formulaic response to Jesus' miracles, whether it's, it says, you know, the crowds marveled or the Pharisees marveled or, or somebody marveled. It, was, it is this combination of perplexed, but also a hungry curiosity, right? A hungry curiosity. It's, it's, it's like saying, something is going on here. I don't know what yet, but I'm intrigued. And that's Peter's response, right? It's not, you know, it hasn't redeemed. He is risen indeed yet. Uh, it's still far from redeeming that. Never mind, we ha- you know, that we have like not sunk our teeth into the gospel donut yet. So to do that, let's go to our third word. And yes, I'm going to be saying donut a lot still. In verses 4 through 7, let me reread this to refresh us. While they were perplexed about this, behold... Oh, and by the way, note the underlined words and phrases on the screen because these words and phrases are going to be parallels in another passage I'm about to read after this one. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel... And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Wait, when was it then that Jesus was in Galilee with his disciples? What did he say? What was he saying at that time? Well, we can go back to Luke chapter 9 right in the midst of the tra- what's called the transfiguration, where they are in Galilee, and we see this amazing parallel wording. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Same, same word as dazzling apparel in Luke 24. And behold, two men, not two angels, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Okay, what is he, what is he talking about? This word departure, 
is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that we translate as Exodus. And now he's meeting with Moses on a mountain. What in the world? Why do we care about this? Where's the gospel donut in this? What I'm trying to say is that we've been nibbling on it the whole time. The moment, the exodus that Jesus is talking about is Easter. The departure is his resurrection. It's the departure from the old creation into the new creation and bringing all of history with him. You see, we've been nibbling on this gospel donut the whole time because the response of the women of Peter, of, 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 of perplexed women, of a marveling Peter, and even the disbelieving disciples in general, this is the foyer. Foyer? 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 This is the foyer of Easter hope. You don't actually get to it except through perplexion, except through marveling. The transfiguration is important, and this connection that Luke is making between these two events is important because it is this incredible inbreaking of redemptive history that pulls into their present the previous resurrection moment that God's people, in referring to Exodus, that God's people, Israel, was told to remember for their hope in God's faithfulness and marrying it and pulling the future into their present at the moment of the transfiguration and marrying it into the new literal resurrection moment for God's people, Easter, which we, the church, are now told to remember for our hope in God's faithfulness. I know that's really exciting for a pastor who like geeks out about this stuff. My point is this, when the angels tell us and the disciples, remember what Jesus told you, that is nothing less than an invitation to being restoried, restoried by resurrection life in order to see through resurrection light. Just as the Exodus defined the story of God's people until Christ came, Easter defines our story until he returns. In other words, that means by implication and understanding how God's people are responding in this moment, it's actually okay if you're perplexed right now. It's okay if you're marveling and you're not fully to the place of like, oh, I believe every bit with every fiber of my being and total and complete certainty that he is risen. It means that he is risen is a statement of objective reality that is true no matter how strongly or weakly we believe it at the time. It is, it is grace upon grace that this has happened apart from our ability and our confidence in believing it. Think about it this way. On the one night of Passover in the book of Exodus, God got Israel out of Egypt but it took 40 years in the wilderness to get Egypt out of them. On the morning, a singular, unique, unprecedented single morning of Easter, Jesus delivered the world from death, but it was always going to take a lot longer to get death out of the world. The more that we remember the redefining reality of Easter, the more the scars of a Good Friday world are demoted to the dustbin of history. They're still there. Doesn't mean the scars don't ache sometimes. But they're only there for now. And because of Easter, they are, they are actually restoried with and through Christ's risen kindness as reminders not of Jesus' absence, but of Christ's living presence. In other words, 
the empty plastic carton points not to the absence of yogurt, but to the presence of donuts. Don't think about it too hard. In a second, we'll, I'll take some questions for a Q&A, so go ahead and text those in if you have any. But let's return to where we started, that he is risen. All right. That is not an artifact of nostalgic subculture. It is not a trite silver lining or an empty ritual. It is, a re- it is an Easter people remembering together and reminding each other that we no longer live under the threat of death, but the eventuality of life. And do those with a full or doubtless certainty need reminders? No, you don't. If you have certainty, you don't need reminding. That's the good news. That's why someone who who can struggle with faith and feel lots of doubt can say he is risen and be authentic and a millennial. He is risen isn't good news for the anesthetized, but for the perplexed and for the marveling. He is risen is this out loud invitation to come and see the empty tomb, to confess with angels and men and women alike, he's not here, but he is here now. He is risen is the single most revolutionary statement in human history, declaring that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. It is the most discomforting invasion of hope amidst despair, of come and die salvation rather than do no harm self-protection. It is the triumphant, and if you hear last week, I mean every bit of that word, triumphant yell of certain victory despite humanity's spiritual addiction to every single flavor of self-sabotage available, and some that aren't. He is risen is the shalom that transcends all political squabbling and social jockeying, is the good news that death has an expiration date and life is the end of our story, period, full stop. He is risen. And because I apparently preached that perfectly, you have no questions. So, let me pray. Jesus, you are risen. I confess that even as a pastor and even as I'm sitting here preaching some of these things, I, I don't fully believe that all the time. I'm often perplexed. Sometimes I marvel. On bad days, I don't even know. But Lord, that's why I need to hear that he is risen. That's why I need to respond, knowing that when I say he is risen indeed, it will backfill into my heart because it is something that is true and stands apart from anything that I do or do not feel confidence in. Lord, that is what it means to be an Easter people in a Good Friday world. But Lord, we thank you that you have made this not just a Good Friday world. You have made the new creation that we get to look forward to already invade and become a part of it. Lord, help us to rest in that and help us to celebrate that which only you could have accomplished and that we get to rejoice in. So we pray all these things in your name. Amen.